0: So I'm really thrilled about the the sermon series, The Heart of Worship. And I think that is a fantastic thing. And that's actually one of the things that drew me to the Vineyard Movement. So we're a Vineyard church plant. And so a lot of the songs that were around in the 80s and 90s, a lot of it came out of the Vineyard Movement. And that was actually some of what really drew me to the Vineyard Movement. And so we're excited to be a part of that and looking forward to seeing what God will do with us and through us in this great city. So... Standing at 29,029 feet, or 8,848 meters, Mount Everest is the tallest peak in the planet. And it was on May 29, 1953, at 11.30 a.m., that Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, a Sherpa, became the first people ever to climb to the peak of the Mount Everest. And since that day, almost 4,000 people have reached the summit. And while these 4,000 people could go back home and brag about what they accomplished, there are almost 300 people who died attempting this treacherous climb. And there are still over 200 bodies that were never recovered from the mountain. The quest to climb Mount Everest demands everything of the person attempting to do it. It takes over a year just to prepare your body and your mind to make the climb. And not only the training, but the financial cost to do this is, is, is crazy. It's $25,000 just to get the permit to climb. And then of course you have to hire Sherpas and other, other guides to help you do that. So the quest to climb Mount Everest means that everything else in your life takes a backseat for a full year. So for a solid year, those who dare to climb Mount Everest must have a singular focus. It demands everything of those who attempt to climb it. When George Mallory, a, another mountaineer who made three attempts to climb Mount Everest, was asked why he wanted so badly to climb Mount Everest, he quickly and simply replied, Because it's there. Because it's there. This statement has been called the most famous three words in mountaineering. Whether it's Mount Everest or the K2, The grandeur of the highest peaks on the planet, there's something about that that calls us upward. We stand in awe of the mountains, just even looking around Vancouver, right? The glorious mountains all over, and something about that just propels us forward. There's something deep within us that is moved beyond words when we behold the splendor of the highest peaks on the planet, as if God dwelled We've been talking about worship for the past few weeks at Thrive Church. And what I want to talk to you about today is not so much the the act of worship, but the worshiper. Not the, the, the activity of worship, but the worshiper, him or herself. To move from the activity of worship to the person doing the worship Because as John Wimber, who is the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he said this. He said, we learned that what happens when we are alone with the Lord determines how intimate and deep the worship will be when we come together. Let me read that again. We learned that what happens when we are alone with the Lord determines how intimate and deep the worship will be when we come together. Have you experienced that in your life? What if worship is more than what we do at church? What if, in fact, worship is more about what happens from Monday through Saturday? What if God is really after not so much about what we do, but who we are becoming? What if more than the act of worshiping, what truly touches the heart of God is the kind of worshiper that we are becoming. What if? I want to spend the brief time that we have together to ask one very important question. In fact, I would say that it's the most important question that any person could ask because question after question, every other question will lead ultimately to this one question. And so today, borrowing from Psalm 24, which is a passage that we'll be studying I've entitled my sermon, Who May Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Who may ascend the Mountain of the Lord? So let's just pray together really quickly and we'll dive into scripture. Father, we believe that you are here, we believe that this is holy ground. We believe that you are here to change lives. We believe that you are here to answer our prayers. We believe that you are here to make us more and more like your son, Jesus. God, for just this brief time that we have together, I just pray that you would, by your grace, allow us to just cast aside every distraction, every big big decision that's looming, all the things that's waiting for us this week and all the things that we have to process from last week, we just want to be here with you simply as your son and your daughter because we love you, because we want to be with you, because we want to see you. So God, I pray you would in our gathering, in this place right now. Just send your spirit just in a palpable way that we would feel your presence here. That we would see uh, faith released in our midst to believe in you for greater things. We pray, God, for healing in our midst, physical healings, relational healings, families coming together. We pray for uh, you to call the prodigals back to yourself. We want to meet with you face to face today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And since it's not a very long passage, uh, verses 1 through 10, um, can we actually read that out loud together? And I think they'll, they'll be on the screens here. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. Let's read it out loud together. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates, What a marvelous, amazing passage. The psalmist begins with this broad, sweeping statement that sets the stage for everything else in in those verses. He writes in verses 1 and 2 these words, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters." The psalmist says before we make any attempt to ask that question of questions, we must first understand the premise. And in his mind, everything revolves around the fact that there is a God. That every question, every longing, every searching of our lives at its core must begin with the fact that there is a God. And not only did he create us, he created the universe. And by his mighty hands, he made everything out of nothing. There is a God, and he made you and me. It starts there. So, as Christians, we believe that there is a God. As Christians, we believe that this God is a God of love. We believe that He created the heavens and the earth and all who live in it. We believe as Christians that Jesus is the Son of God. He died for our sins. We believe that He rose again from the dead. He ascended into the right hand of the Father. And we believe that there will come a day He will return and make all things new. So as Christians... In light of all that, we worship. We worship God. Because God exists, worship exists. Because God exists, worship exists. Worship is God-centeredness. Worship is to be consumed with who God is. Worship is the forgetting of ourselves and remembering who God is and what He has done Worship is the movement from apathy to awe. Worship from start to finish is all about God, is all for God, all to God. Worship begins and ends with God. Because God exists, worship exists. And this is the premise upon which we can ask this question of questions in verse 3 who may ascend the mountain of the lord who may stand in his holy presence if there is a god if indeed he made the heavens and the earth and if indeed he made you and me really is there a greater question that we can ask than this one how do we relate with this god how do we see him how do we know him how do we dwell in his holy place and this is the fundamental question that every single religion is trying to answer who is able to meet with god or to put it another way who is that person who can see god This is the question that has consumed mankind ever since the great fall in the Garden of Eden. Ever since that day, in an attempt to ascend the mountain of the Lord, to stand in His holy place, to see God, we've created golden calves, we've built the Tower of Babel, we've built monasteries, we've built, we have done pilgrimages to the holy city, we've built multi-billion dollar particle accelerators to collide some atomic particles, all because we want to see God. Who is the person who can see God? That man, that woman, that child who can see God? And as we examine ourselves today, let us ask, is it me is it me so what is the answer to that question well i think the answer may surprise you the psalmist declares that what we what god is after are not the strong people the smart people the self-confident people the successful people people who have it all together the accomplished people or even the religious people This is what we read in verse 4. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false God. What God is after, what God is longing for, what God is searching for are people who have clean hands and a pure heart People who do not worship idols. So what does it mean to have clean hands? In the Bible, the hands are used uh, in various symbolic ways. To shake hands is to enter into a formal agreement. To clap hands is to celebrate. To put hands over one's head is to mourn, is to grieve, to Put one's hand over their mouth is to signify silence. And of course, to lift holy hands is an act of worship. So the question that we are asking is: these hands, are these hands clean hands? And what about pure heart? What does it mean to have a pure heart? Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says this in Matthew 5:8, says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god the gospel of jesus is first and foremost concerned about the heart all of the emphasis on the teachings of jesus is centered around the heart of a person why because the heart is the fount out of which everything else flows. Everything flows from our hearts. It is the origin of all of our words and our actions. So you read in Luke chapter 60's words. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is out of our heart that all that is good, lovely, and beautiful comes. But the heart is also where the darkest parts of who we are reside. Matthew 15, 19 says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So what it's saying is when someone murders someone, when someone has an affair, when someone steals, when someone does something evil, that does not start with their brain or their eyes. It starts in here. Those are actions that started all the way in our hearts. A pure heart is a heart that is without hypocrisy. A heart that has absolutely nothing to hide. A pure heart is an undivided heart. And is it not the divided heart that is the fundamental problem for us in attempting to ascend this mountain of the Lord. I want to see God so badly, but my eyes keep wandering. So, how clean are our hands today? How pure is our heart today? There's a great story in the Bible where King David wanted to build an altar to the Lord so that he can offer sacrifices to God. And so he looks around to buy this land where he can build this altar. And he sees this plot of land that looks promising. And the owner comes out and he immediately falls flat on his face and he begins to uh, talk to King David. And King David tells him that he is looking for this land to build an altar of the Lord and upon hearing this, the owner of the land tells King David that he can have absolutely whatever he wants for free. Just take it, King. Just take it. And this is what King David says in 2 Samuel 24:24. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. What have we offered God that really cost us something lately? When was the last time that we gave something that was actually painful to give? When was the last time that we actually deprived ourselves of something to honor God, to please God? When was the last time that we offered God an actual sacrifice of praise, worship that cost us something? For those who dare to climb the mountain of the Lord, what God is asking of us is for A costly offering. A costly offering. Something that almost goes beyond our nature to to give. Something that hurts a little bit to give. Something that pinches us a little bit to give. Something that doesn't come naturally out of our, just who we are. But that it actually goes counter in some ways to who we are to Give something to God that is actually hard for us to give. The journey up the mountain is a costly endeavor, and I want to talk about four costly offerings that are required of us to climb this mountain of the Lord. First is the costly offering of repentance, the offering of repentance. To be that person who can ascend the mountain of the Lord, we must first deal with our sin the great pastor john stott uh, said this he said sin and the child of god are incompatible they may occasionally meet they cannot live together in harmony there is a time in our worship to be joyful to be loud and to celebrate but there are also times where the most worshipful thing that we can do that we can offer god is To repent. Sometimes our loudest worship is profoundly silent, an offering of repentance. An offering of repentance. So here's one thing that I would love for us to to try uh, sometime this week, and just want to encourage you. So rather than rushing in to church you know, right as it's getting started. Not that any of you guys do that here, but those other churches where people do stuff like that, that, you know, they're, they're running late and all that, and they just kind of rush in and kind of just go about their day. But what if you actually take some time to prepare yourself for worship? What if actually you arrive here 10, 15 minutes before service starts and sit in this room and quietly just wait upon the Lord to reflect upon your week, to examine your heart and see if there are things that we need to give God in repentance? What if not only on Sundays we actually make that a regular part of our daily routine, that before going about each day that we actually spend time 10, 15 minutes a day reflecting on our lives and asking God, God, show me what I need to work on today. What are you highlighting in my life today? What should I repent of today? And I feel like some of the, the biggest dangers of us Christians is we're, that we're so busy We're running from one activity to the other. We have jobs. We have families. We have relationships. All of these things that constantly demand our time. We're rushing from one thing to the next. And there's never a time to sit and be with God. To be alone with God. So I would love it if you would try that sometime this week just set aside 10, 15 minutes and actually put it on your calendar and say, I'm going to spend 15 minutes just sitting and being with God and examining my heart. I think it will revolutionize your worship life. Have you learned to despise sin in your life? Have you matured enough as a Christian to absolutely Hate sin. Have you put to death your sins, as Paul says in Romans eight thirteen for thirteen? For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. To become a person who has clean hands and a pure heart, we must by the Spirit of God put to death the sin in our lives, and that begins with repentance. So that's the first costly offering. The second costly offering is self-denial, self-denial. Psalm 24, verse 4. Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Self-denial means removing the idols from your life, removing the false gods in your life, starting first with yourself. Colossians 3 5, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So what are the idols in our lives? What are the things that we've put up on a pedestal? And it's easy to point out things like sexual immorality and lust and greed. We say, of course, those are terrible things. Yeah, let's remove those things. But what about the different kinds of idols that you and I have? Idols of comfort. Idols of safety. The idol of marriage. The idol of family. Sometimes the biggest idol in our life is a good thing, which simply takes the place of the greatest thing, which is God. What are those idols you have in your life? Let's take, for instance, money, and that's fun to talk about, right? It is arguably the greatest idol in most of our lives, and to remove an idol, you must break the stronghold that it has on your heart, and if money is your idol, I think the best way to loosen its grip is to give it away as much as you possibly can, as often as you possibly can, to the point that it actually hurts a little bit. So I love the video that you guys saw, this idea of tithing which is a hard teaching to swallow for many of us so if you haven't started tithing i want to challenge you to start there it's this idea god of god everything that i have is yours and as an acknowledgement of that i'm going to tithe to you so if you haven't started tithing start there and if you are already tithing let me to kind of challenge you with this, try giving just one percent more each year. If you are giving ten percent now, next year try eleven percent and twelve percent, so on and so on and so on. So, ten years from now, you're giving God twenty percent of your income. Can you imagine giving twenty percent to God? The average person in a church gives three point two percent. And so we have this weird way of thinking about money. If if I have more money, of course I'll give it away. But here's the thing. The more we actually make, the less we give. It's funny. The more we make, the less we give. So let's break that bondage of money in our lives. To remove the idols in our lives, we must radically orient our lives toward God, and we must often find ourselves humbly on our knees before God, being on our knees before God, the most fundamental posture of a Christian. Have you humbly kneeled before God lately? Or have you been kneeling before other idols? The third costly offering for those who dare to climb is perseverance. The costly offering of perseverance. Anybody can climb anything once. But what truly distinguishes the pros from the amateurs is perseverance, the ability to climb again and again and again. A Sherpa named Apa has climbed the summit of Everest 21 times. 21 times. That's a record. And he would have kept on going, except for the fact that he promised his wife that he would stop. And so why 21? Someone asked him. He said, everyone says 21 is a good number. I have to make my family happy. Every time I go, they worry because Everest is very risky. 21 times anybody can climb anything once but can you climb again and again and again to persevere means to become a marathon runner and not a sprinter to persevere means delayed gratification paying the price now to receive that prize at the end James one twelve, we read this blessed are those who persevere under trial because when they have stood the test they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him I wonder if anybody here is on the verge of giving up whatever it may be maybe it's something related to your school, something related to your job, maybe something about your family, or maybe it's something that you're going through personally in your life, and you're like, gosh, I've been fighting for this for a long time, and I, I think I'm done. If that's you, I'm here to, to encourage you. Don't give up. Fight the good fight Till the end persevere if you feel like your sin recently is keeping you away from God know this that there is nowhere that you can run from God that he's not chasing you down with his love and his grace and his mercy there's no pit so low that he cannot go down and grab you out of there there's no addiction so strong, bondage so strong that he cannot break that in your life. Don't give up. Fight the good fight. Hang in there. Persevere. So we talked about the costly offering of repentance, self-denial, and perseverance, but none of that means anything without faith more than anything else what is required of those who dare to climb the mountain of the lord is faith the costly offering of faith because here's the rub no matter how hard you try no matter how hard you repent no matter how much you deny yourself no matter how much you persevere it is ultimately god who gives us clean hands and a pure heart you cannot do this on your own You simply cannot do this on your own. The whole notion of clean hands and a pure heart is reserved only for people of faith, those who put their trust in Jesus and in him alone. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher at Westminster Chapel, said this about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God he says this, he says, the Sermon on the Mount comes to us and says, there is the mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb, and the first thing you must realize as you look at the mountain, which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. In other words, As we read in Proverbs 29, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? Who among us is sinless today? Who among us can keep our hearts pure? We cannot do it on our own strength. But thanks be to God, because Matthew 19, 26 says, with human beings, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible it is God alone who is ultimately able to give us clean hands and a pure heart it is God alone who can make us into pure true worshipers and what we are called to do is to humbly kneel before Jesus that most fundamental posture of a Christian and echo that prayer of David in Psalm 51 10 he says create in me a pure heart O God Create in me a pure heart, O God. It is God who cleans hands and purifies the hearts. And and the means with which we do this, engage with God, is through faith. Faith. The commodity of the kingdom. Faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So climbing this mountain of the Lord to engage with God, to actually have a relationship with Him, the means by which we do that is faith. Faith. So no matter where you are today, by faith in Christ Jesus, you too can ascend the mountain of the Lord. You can dwell in His holy presence, and you too can worship God. It is to believe that He is for you and not against you. It is to believe that based on all that we've read in the Bible about His mighty deeds that he is able to redeem us, that he will be faithful to what he promised us, that he is redeeming us, the people of God. So verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 5, Psalm 24, we read this. The reward for those who climb. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face, God of Jacob. All right, great. Got some mood lighting here now. The great reward for those who by faith pursue God is blessing and vindication. So what is blessing and what does it mean to be blessed? Well, contrary to popular belief, to be blessed does not mean that you get to drive around in a Mercedes Benz with the, Sticker on the bumper, it says, Too blessed to be stressed. That's not it. And if you have that sticker, I am sorry, but I just made fun of you. To be blessed means to be approved by God. To be blessed means to receive the applause of heaven, that God is looking down at us and he's applauding our lives. To be approved by God. There is no other approval that means more than that. And then we read that he will not only receive blessing from the Lord, the approval of heaven, but that he will also be vindicated. So what exactly does it mean to receive vindication? So it means to be justified, it means to be acquitted, to be exonerated. Vindication is something that is reserved for those who have been Unjustly blamed and punished, do you know that sometimes being followers of Jesus that we get unjustly punished and persecuted and I know that there are the, the persecution that we receive in a country like Canada is nothing like those in other other, other parts of the world where people are actually getting killed for their faith, but we 've all experienced in our engagement with someone that that interaction, like, oh, things are going great, and then then they know that you're a Christian, and then there's this weird thing, and sometimes they may just kind of maybe be verbally abusive, and and so I had this experience, you know, so we're in the uh, Falls Creek area, and we were involved in this um, street cleaning as an opportunity to meet people, and so a bunch of the neighbors were out, and we we're cleaning the streets, picking up cigarette butts, and trash, and all that, and There were, you know, a great group of people, and we met some really nice people, and they were super friendly towards us until I told them that I was a Christian, I was a pastor, that I was planting a church in that neighborhood. And immediately, like, his face changed, and he took a step back and said, oh, so what makes you think you're right and I'm wrong? I I don't know what I just said. Uh, I, I said, I'm a Christian, and and immediately this wall went up and this defensiveness went up. And, and so we chatted for a while and it turned out that he had been hurt by the church in many ways. And he's been dealing with some of that stuff all of his life. And so he, when he heard that I was a Christian, he associated all of these things with me. And so I said, no, we, we are here because we want to tell people that Jesus loves them. That God is pursuing people with his everlasting love. And so we chatted for a few minutes like that. And about 15 minutes later, it's like, oh, I- I'm sorry I responded that way. And, you know, I-, I wish you luck in planting your church in this neighborhood. Have you experienced some tension of living as a Christian? If not, then let me ask you do people know that you are a Christian? Or are you such like a, you know, spy in the, in the Christian world that, you know, you're deep undercover? I'm a Christian, but I'm deep undercover. Have you put your faith out there that there is even a possibility of confrontation with those who do not believe? And I think part of what we fail to realize as Christians is that that's actually a normal part of, of what it means to follow Jesus. The persecution, the, the disagreements, people not knowing what to do with us, that was all part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus said, that happened to me, and it's going to happen to you. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, not pick up your couch and follow me. Pick up your cross, this instrument of death that's instrument of shame and follow me but here's the good news for those people of faith who put their trust in jesus we receive blessing and vindication the judge of all judges the righteous and fair judge who sees all things who knows all things says we will be vindicated we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. The psalmist concludes this wonderful psalm with the prayer in Psalm 27. I'm sorry, verses 7 through 10. It says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? This king of glory the lord almighty he is the king of glory the psalmist with eyes of faith sees jesus with eyes of faith he sees jesus who ascended up a different kind of a mountain a hill where he is nailed to a cross with eyes of faith he sees that it is only because jesus ascended that mountain that we are able to ascend the mountain of the Lord. With eyes of faith, he sees Jesus. I'll end with this one last story. There's a story about a woman in Luke chapter 7. Says she wakes up this morning uh, with a sense of excitement that she hasn't felt that since she was a little girl. This is going to be a very special day. There's a buzz all around town because everyone has heard that there's going to be this big party, and all the who's who" of the city is coming to town. But that's not why she's excited. She doesn't care about those who's who's who. She learned early on that people who possessed power and fame were most often the people who had the coldest hearts and the darkest secrets. She knew this because they were some of her best customers. She couldn't care less about the who's who of the city. All she cares is about one particular person. She never met him before, but she heard plenty of stories about him. And the stories were spectacular and amazing. Some people said that he can make the blind see and the lame walk. Others claimed that they saw him walking on water. Many talked about how he took just a few fish and bread and fed what seemed like thousands of people. The stories were fantastic. But what drew her most to him more than anything else was she heard how he loved people who were unlovable. And she knew that she was very much in that category. So when she hears that he's going to be in town, she makes up her mind that she's going to see him face to face. She's fully aware that this is a gathering where people like her were not welcome, but still she must see Jesus. All through the morning and afternoon, all she can do is think about him, this man who is so different than any other person that she knows. So she digs in her closet or her little room and carefully grabs the most precious thing she owns, a small jar of perfume. This little jar is her entire life savings, about a year's worth of her wages. It's her checking account, her savings account, her 401k, her IRA, all wrapped up in a little jar of perfume. She gently grabs it and begins to walk to the house where Jesus lives. And as she gets closer to this house, she sees that there is a crowd gathered there. And she sees the crowd and her heart sinks. She sees how people are looking at her. They have disgust in their eyes. She can feel on her skin their judgment. She can taste in her mouth their whispers and wormers of condemnation. They're all talking about her. They're all judging her and condemning her. But still, she pushes through She's come here on a mission. As she steps into the doorway of the house, the silence comes over the room. And in the silence, she sees him looking at her as if they were old friends. And quietly, with love and adoration in her heart and tears in her eyes, she walks right up to him. And falls on her face and with the tip of her finger, she touches his feet. And the moment she feels the feet of Jesus, she's overcome with a thousand different emotions and she loses it. She begins to sob. This tear coming from the deepest parts of who she is. She is sobbing at the feet of Jesus. This is her act of repentance. Seeing that the feet of Jesus are now covered with her tears, she gently lets down her hair. And begins to clean the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair. And after all the dirt has been wiped from his feet, she gently kisses them. Then she takes her perfume. The only thing that she owns. And all the shameful things that she did to earn it. She takes a little jar and lavishly pours the perfume on his feet. This is the act of worship. My prayer for Thrive Church is that we would be that kind of worshipper. Passionate worshipers of Jesus like that.